we're changing things up. You'll figure it out um, as I go along because of the topic, um, why we're doing what we're doing. I'm doing a series on sermons from my sabbatical. For those of you new to fullness, I was gone June to July, um, just spending some time with the Lord. And so the sermons I've done over the last couple of weeks, including today and next week, are things that um, I feel like God did in my life. I'm not giving you everything, I'm just giving you some. Uh, you may not know this, but most of the time when I preach, I, 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 I try to hear from God. It's a good thing, right? I try to hear from God about what he would have for you. And what's different about these three is these are things that God spoke to me about me and about life. So we, I looked at the love of God last week for those of you who are here for the the whole thing, I, I looked at uh, the life of John Newton, and I had so much more. I went on for an hour, and I still had more, and uh, I'm glad he didn't do it all then. Um, I like that, though. Biographies speak to me. Lives speak to me. So I'm sorry you have, if, and for some of you, you're like, yes, I loved it. Others, I can, it's fine if we don't go that way again. Um, but it was, uh, it was great. For me, And so that's what I'm sharing with you because I think one of the greatest gifts I can give to our congregation is a healthy me at this point in our, our, our walk together as I've, I'm aging and you're aging and we're seeing tons of new people come in. Uh, anyway, all that to say, uh, again, I'm, I'm going toward a point. There is a verse in this passage that really spoke to me and I'm going to be a little vulnerable with you uh, at the end, but to get there, I need to set it up. So just hang on for the ride for just a little while, because I've preached these passages before, but we have a ton of new people in our church, and I, I want to get the point. I think you have to get caught up. You, you'll understand as I go along. So Jesus is uh, traveling with his disciples through Samaria. He uh, uh, and he comes to a village. His disciples go to get him food. You know the story. A woman comes out to a well where Jesus is sitting. We don't know what he's doing. He's just there. They strike up this conversation. It gets a little in-depth. He starts prophesying over her. I think she gets nervous and asks one of those theological questions that's unanswerable. You know, like, what if the person in deepest, darkest Africa doesn't hear about Jesus? Is he going to be saved or is he going to go to hell? You know, and most people who ask that question, i got to be honest, don't really care about the guy in deepest, darkest Africa. Um, they're more concerned about, they're starting to feel something of the Spirit moving in their heart and life. So they sometimes will ask these theological, unanswerable, can God make a rock so big he can't move it kind of thing? Um, questions. She says to him, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped at this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, Samaritans were part Jewish, mixed uh, in with other peoples, and um, they were excluded, really, from going to Jerusalem. They couldn't even partake in that worship because of their mixed race heritage and so they had set up an alternate site of worship. So she's asking, 
Jesus, after he's kind of pressed into her life and told her some things, she's asking him this question, hey, can we worship on our mountain or do we have to go to your mountain to worship? And if you really hear about her life, I'm not really sure she cares about where her worship is. Worship was not at the forefront of her existence. But she asked Jesus nonetheless. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And that seems a little strong, right? He's coming on a little heavy, but it, he's not meaning salvation is just from the Jews. He's, he's gonna, I think he's meaning salvation is going to come through the Jews, meaning himself. But that's another story. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and truth. This is a, this is a foundation stone of our church. Um, the worship in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers, worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not a 50-50 deal. We're going to take 50 spirit, 50 truth, and we'll combine it together for 100. No, it's 100% of both. 100% of the spirit of God, 100% of the truth of God. The woman says, where's the geography of worship? And Jesus says, it's not about the place, it's about the how. She's asking about the art of worship, and he says it's not about the art of worship, it's about the heart of worship. You have to worship in spirit and in truth. That has been our, what we've tried to do from day one, is be people who fully embrace the truth of God and the spirit of God, because we believe that these two great streams will flow into our lives and change who we are forever. Somebody should say amen, because it's, it's, it is truth, and it's the power and the presence of God. Jumping back to the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 13. I'm going to start here. The first point is this. We need, a people, we need to be a people who worship in truth. Worship in truth. I'm going to highlight these. The first one has to do with truth. The second one has to do with our response, the spirit of God. And then the final point is, is that me? Um, The final point has to do, you know, when you got this beard, things start, I'm getting caught up. (laughs) So, (laughs) where am I? Worship in truth. First Chronicles chapter 13. They moved the Ark of God from Abinadad's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ohio guiding it. I I keep wanting to say Utah and Ohio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs and harps, lyres, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. Picture this. The Ark of God symbolizes in Jewish life what? The presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant is the symbolic presence of God. This is God in the present. So what had happened, just to catch you up on where David is, uh, back in the days of Samuel, whenever there was a, and before Samuel even, whenever there was a battle, 
they felt like if they took the presence of God, the ark was like a magic symbol for them, it became. And they would go out into battle and they would defeat the enemies and their enemies had no hope of winning because they had the ark. So, when Eli, Samuel's mentor, he had a couple of bad boys, bad sons. They went out to fight the Philistines. They got their rear ends kicked. They come back and said, you know what the problem was? We didn't take the Ark of God with us. So they decide to take the Ark of God. They, they don't see it's their own evil acts that's leading to their defeat. They take the Ark out with them into battle, and they're defeated mightily. And the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the Ten Commandments and Aaron's Rod and some other stuff, manna, it's taken, it's taken by the Philistines. They carry it off. And they're like, well, now we got the magic box. <clears throat> the problem is the magic box didn't work for them. Bad things happened to them. Their, their idols were getting torn down. They were getting tumors. Um, rats were infesting. It's a great story. I, I preached this sermon one time. I'm gonna, this is really horrible. I, this is when I was young. I preached this sermon called Rats and Roids because the tumors were like hemorrhoids. And so they, that's what they experienced. I was back when I was young and thought I was really funny, but um, I still think it's kind of funny. Uh, so they say, this isn't working for us. Let's send it back. So they send the Ark of the Covenant. They get a new cart. They put it on this new cart. They get a couple of young calves, oxen, mother, cows, and they just say, let's just turn them loose and see where they go. They don't even guide the cart. They just like put it on a cart and send it back. And sure enough, the Ark of the Covenant gets on the road and the cows lead it back across into the nation of Israel. Some guys are out harvesting their wheat. They look up and oh, it's the Ark of God. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And they do like a pull of Raiders of the Lost Ark move on it. They say, hey, let's look. I always want to see what was inside. <laughs> Seventy of them die looking inside the Ark. Have you never seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? <clears throat> I, I know I'm dating myself. You should go see. I'll tell you. Go see that one. Um, anyway, they look inside. Seventy die. They say, we don't want to keep it either. They send it on down the road to Abinadad's house, and it stays there for years. They did not seek the ark of God. They did not worship it during the days, the rest of the life of Samuel, all during the days of Saul. Now David's become king, and he says, hey, let's go get the ark of God. Let's bring it up and bring it to the city of David, which is Jerusalem. Let's bring it here, and we'll worship. When they came to the threshing floor, of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. This is one of the strange Bible stories. You're like, what did Uzzah do wrong? The, ark, the, the ox stumbled. He wanted to rescue the ark. He didn't want it damaged. He puts up his hand, and God kills him. You'd probably be like David. Made David angry. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. Going on, David was not only angry, he was also afraid. 
David was afraid that day and asked, how can I even bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he, he took it aside to the house of, excuse me, I'm having trouble reading, Obed, Edom the Gideite. Gideite. So here's what happens. David is bringing the ark back to the city. Here's your key question. How is David bringing the ark? He, yeah, the wrong way. He put it on a cart drawn by oxen. Who did that? The Philistines did it. It is the way, it is a picture of a, the worship of God in the way the world wants to worship God. It, it is a picture of what the world says is the right way. And there's tons of this, I think, going on all around us. That the world says, here's how I want to worship God. Or even churches are saying, here's how I feel like worshiping God today. Rather than saying, God, how do you want to be worshiped today? We make worship human-centered rather than God-centered. And God had directed how his presence was to be ushered in. And his presence was not to be ushered in on some new fancy cart with oxen with two strong men on either side to hold it up. His presence was to be ushered in on the backs of his consecrated people. There's so much to this story. And so David just dumps the ark there and he goes home. Two chapters later, some time later, it says, after David had uh, constructed buildings for himself in the city of David. So it's been a little while, right? He prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. By the way, we don't know, we don't know this tent. We don't know what's happened to the tabernacle by this point. It's been 400 years since uh, the Exodus. So we don't know if this tent is a tabernacle. It's a, it's a tabernacle, but it is may not be the original. I'm getting on fine points. Don't worry about it. Then David said, no one but the Levites might carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. He said to them, he calls the, the, the Levites together and consecrates them. Down in verse 12 of chapter 15, I skipped a couple of verses. He said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. People, here's, here's what I believe with all my heart. David, first time, ark, on the cart, with the oxen. He, if you read the passage, he is worshiping hard. He is sincere, he is passionate, he is going at it, he's doing it to the strength of all of his ability, and he's doing it wrong, and therefore God is not honored. Because the question isn't how much David parties, or how sincere David is, this is about how God wants to be worshipped, because worship has to happen in truth. There has, it has to be a 
according to God's way, not our way. David leaves the ark. He goes, and now he's studying. Now, listen to me here. Don't blame David, really. David has never seen the ark transported in his entire life. He didn't know how to transport the ark. He, he, you know, it, it was before he was even born was the last time it got moved. And now, it's not like David was being disobedient. David just was ignorant. And again, ignorance is no excuse, I would say. We have to hear from God. We have to, we have to say, God, how do you want to be worshipped? It's, it's about the state of our heart by the blood of Jesus Christ, in his power, by his presence, understanding his truth. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. We need to worship God in the way he wants to be worshipped. David, David worships. He comes before the Lord. I could go on. I'm, I'm going to keep moving because I really do have another point to make here. But I, I, for those of you who are new to fullness, really, I know I've preached this idea over and over. I, I need to be reminded of it like you need to be reminded of it because we all get to a point where it becomes, worship becomes more about me rather than about him. I mean, I, I've, I've found myself just like you going home and saying, you know, I really wasn't blessed that much today. I didn't like this song or that song, you know, rather than saying, God, how do you want to be worshipped today? How can my heart be fully and completely yours? How can I worship you in truth? We need to walk out the truth of God. Amen? You with me? So, the second point is this. Worship in response. It, it, our, our worship is... Without the Spirit of God, worship is merely a human endeavor. With the Spirit of God, it becomes a supernatural encounter between the God who created us and us. So our worship is not generated by us. Our worship is in response to what God has done. Right? So God created, he redeemed, he saves us, he infills us with his presence. Now our worship is a response to him. David takes the ark back to the city, and he says this, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of his wonderful acts. Glory to his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. David gets back. And by the way, this psalm of praise goes on for like 20 more verses. David just breaks out in song. Like, when David is bringing the ark back, he is just partying hard too again. Second time, even harder. But now this time, his worship is in truth, and he's given himself before the Lord. I mean, it's extravagant worship. And so much so that Saul's, Saul, 
Saul's daughter, Michael, looks out a window and she's totally offended at David dancing and worshiping before the Lord. She's like so offended that she says, what is wrong with you? And as a result, she's barren for the rest of her life. There's a direct connect, there seems to be, between her pronouncement on David's worship and her inability to have children in the days ahead. Again, I know I'm seeing all sorts of spiritual significance here, um, but I told you this was about me uh, and what I'm seeing. And it, it, to me, it's, it's a picture that, that worship, true worship of God results in fruitfulness. And judgment, and it results in us being unproductive and unfruitful. You can throw that one in your basket and write it down, think about it later. Um, but he comes in, and by the way, don't get all hung up on the dancing part. You know, before long we'll be singing, has David danced, and you know, um, dance, children dance kind of stuff. It's not about David's dancing. It's more about his uninhibited worship before God. And I think that uninhibited worship of God is an anathema to the world, meaning they don't like it. It is offensive to the world. You don't, we don't have to learn to be offensive. I mean, you could. Uh, we're not purposefully offensive. We're just saying we worship God, and the gospel and worship is offensive. So we worship, then he comes in and he responds in worship. And if you go into this song and just look it out, you'll see that uh, it, it is made up of, uh, it's a psalm of praise. I'm just kind of giving you some highlights of this. It's a psalm of remembrance. It's a psalm of testimony. It's a psalm of reverence. It is a psalm of thanksgiving. It is a response to what God has done. The truth of God, the presence of God, the power of God, David responds in worship. Our, our, our worship people, I, I know I'm going on about this maybe more than you want, but please understand that your worship, you don't have to come to worship and say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. You're not the little engine that could. You are the little engine who God puts his steam power in and you can. It is a response to him. It is not trying to get him to. Do you understand the difference? It, it's a major perspective shift to understand our worship is always a response to God. He loves, I love because what? He first loved us. Same thing about worship. Let me give you one New Testament example. I know in the Old Testament a lot, but I still think it speaks. Paul in 1 Timothy says this to Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came in the world to save sinners. Paul saying to Timothy, the obvious, Christ came for what purpose? To save sinners. Then he goes on and says, of whom I am the worst. Paul always saw himself as the worst of sinners. I talked about this last week with John Newton. Same idea, just I, I, my life prior to knowing Christ was so horrible that I am the chief among sinners. But Paul says, God saved me nonetheless. And he goes, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Again, Paul's saying, I'm an example. If I can get saved, anybody can get saved. 
I was the worst, he can save all of us and give us all eternal life. This is a basic, you're reading this for like two, three verses, and it's basically a theological presupposition that Paul is telling Timothy. But look at what happens when Paul really realizes this truth. Now, unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, to honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. His theological statement about what God does results in a response of worship back to God. That's how we stand. Theology is not bad. As a matter of fact, it should make us break out in worship before God. This guy, God is unbelievable. Now, under the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. If you take this verse out of context, you're like, ah, Paul's just, he's getting it worked up. Whoop, whoop. But no, he is responding to what God has done in his life and the lives of those around him because true worship is a response to what God has done. J.I. Packer talks about how he experiences God's presence most powerfully in worship, often during singing. And he says, I suppose when I sing, when we sing to him, we're looking hard. And really, he's saying back in his direction. It's a response to what God has done. I don't know how you prepped to come to worship this morning. I know you got up, probably had breakfast, hopefully took a shower, um, you know, got dressed, came to church. My desire is, though, every time the body of Christ gathers, you come saying, God, thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you that I get to go among the saints of God and worship your name and exalt you and praise you and bring glory. Thank you for what you've done in my life. I'm going to respond in you to worship. God, how do you want to be worshiped today? Let us, as the body of Christ, Lift our praise to you, King Eternal, and lift up and exalt your name. Because worship is in truth, worship is in his spirit. Because it's in spirit, it's a response to him. Here's the third point, and believe it or not, I spent the whole morning getting to this. And it has to do with worship and living. Worship and living. Here's the verse after all of this that stuck out to me. And it's at the end of chapter 15, and in some ways you could see it as a throwaway verse, but honestly, people, this pierced my heart. And it's this. After the huge worship service, then all the people left, each for his own house, and David returned home to do what? To bless his family. Worship is not something we just do on Sunday morning. Worship should affect and be a part of every moment of all of our lives. When you go from this place, you, don't, you shouldn't say, I gave my hour, hour and a half to worship of God. But rather, it should take us back into our homes to bless our homes to bless our workplace, to bless our schools, to bless those around us. Because if it's limited to right here, right now, is it really true worship? Because of who and whose we are, it should be
how are we doing at living lives of worship? How are we doing at blessing our homes? While I was away, I had the opportunity to spend some long conversations with some of my children who are now adults, all living their own lives. And they're all great kids, kids. They're all great young adults. They're all great adults. Heck, some of them make more money than I do. Wouldn't be that hard. But uh, in any case, I digress. I was speaking to one of them and asking them about their walk with the Lord. And they said to me, you know, I'm struggling. And I'm like, well, what's the struggle? I, I read the Bible. I just don't get anything out of it. And, you know, I, I'm trying to get through this without being very emotional. And I'm thinking, how did one of my children get to this point? And so I said to them, what, what can I do to help? What can I do at this point to help? They're no longer in my home. They no longer live with me. They no longer are a part of my circle, you know. And they said, I don't, I just, I don't, I don't really know. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole conversation. It was pretty intense and lasted a while. But what we came up with was, I'm going to be like your trainer, like your personal trainer. How about I send you every morning a three to four minute devotion. We'll read a book of the Bible. I'll go through it and show you how I do it and some of the truths that God is speaking to me from just a couple of verses, and I'll send it to you on a daily basis. If I do this, will you promise to watch it? Yes. I promise. So for the last month, every morning, first thing when I get up, I record a three to four minute video devotion. And no, you can't have it. So <laughs> for my family, because the other family members heard and they wanted it. They said, I, I, I'd like that. And I said to them all, this is not you being totally dependent upon me for the rest of your lives. This is me trying to help you understand how to read God's word for yourself, see some truths from it, and then you take it from there. Here's my thought. And, I, you know, if I had to parent again, I'd do it over. I would do it different. You may say, Really? I thought your kids turned out great. My kids turned, did turn out great. I love my children, and they could be listening. I love you guys, all of you. You're great. You're doing great. But at the same time, I came out of the sabbatic thinking, if I had it to do over again, and now this is not for you. This is for me. I told you. But it may cause you to think a little bit. I would spend, more, I would spend less time on the laws and more time on the love. I don't know if that makes sense to you. 
But I, I was really concerned about raising obedient children. And no one likes disobedient children. They're a pain in the rear, right? I mean, no one likes that. It's not that I would abandon obedience, not at all. But I would have spent more time figuring out how can I bless my family? How can I instill in them this love of God? Because when they leave your home, parents, they choose the law that they'll follow. They choose the rules that they're going to... You'll be amazed at some of the things they choose to do out on their own. But if we instill in our children the love of God and the relationship with God, then when they get out on their own, they'll have that passion and they will follow God and live fruitful lives. I'm throwing out all of this to you to say we have to worship in spirit and in truth and lives of worship. Many people today, I think, are holding God's at arm's length. He's, I'm not going to reject God. He's there. But I'm also not going to embrace God and say he's here. If we're going to be a people who worship in spirit and truth, we have to open our arms and let God envelop us. We cannot hold him at arm's length. If you're here today and you're, you're just saying, yeah, I think there's a God and his son Jesus and he's there. I'm ne I'll never reject him kind of thing. But I'm in control of me. I don't think you'll ever get to a place where you really live a life of worship. A couple of years later, sometime later really, you know, David's told he can never build the temple but he thinks he'll help. So he collects an offering. And the nation brings stuff for the future temple that Solomon's going to build. And he is so overwhelmed, he basically tells them to stop. And again, he, makes him break, he breaks out in worship. And he says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours, O Lord is the kingdom. You are entitled, you are exalted as head overall. I can only think of one time in our church's history where the offering's been so good that worship broke out as a result of the offering. I wouldn't mind it again. But that's what happens with David. He, the offering is so good that he breaks out in worship before God. Saying, everything is yours, O oh Lord. Everything, we give everything to you. Now, we're going to take up an offering as a part of the worship we're going to do. So what I determined we would do is to end in worship rather than begin it. Because with all of these presuppositions in mind to worship in truth and in spirit and as an offering of our lives before the, before the Lord, then we... We respond to him and worship. And when we're done with worship, we're not done with worship. We go from this place to live lives of worship in which we bless our families because we all go to our own place and have our own sphere of influence. Stand up with me if you would.
I want to encourage you to give yourself to a heart of worship right now. To just enter in. And this is not necessarily about some sort of demonstration of a certain style or physical activity, but rather just exalt your heart before the Lord. While we worship over these next couple of songs, we're going to do two or three songs. And as we worship... You can bring your offering to the front, and I didn't use that illustration to try and manipulate you into bringing money. You're very generous people. But if you have an offering, bring it before the Lord. But I would like for you to take the card in the seat back in front of you and either write a praise report or a prayer request, something that you can, as you come up, you just say, God, again, today I'm giving myself wholeheartedly. I don't want to hold you at arm's length. I want to embrace fully what you're doing in my heart and my life. Because people... There will come a day where we all worship because, as it says in the book of Revelation, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We exalt you. People, I just want to encourage you to lift your hearts and your spirits up before the Lord right now. Just focus totally and completely on him. Put everything, put every thought aside about where you're going to lunch or what you're going to do after this. And right now, focus fully on him. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Church, let's just worship the Lord right now.